Well, as we turn our, our hearts toward God's word this morning, I just want to address even just a, a couple of more recent things um, in modern day Christianity. Over the years, Christianity has tended to be marketed to unbelievers in a number of different ways. And in many cases, the intention, I believe, is to make Christianity attractive to those who are interested in professing faith in Jesus Christ. One popular gospel track from years ago, and maybe you've even seen this yourself, it began with the words, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, we know that that is a true sentiment. However, it's not always explained to people that it's actually God's plan that is wonderful, yet that plan will most likely include a measure of pain and persecution and difficulty for us in this life. Frankly, it's not right to tell a person that if they come to Jesus, their life will instantly become better, because it may be better in some cases, but in many ways, it's also uh, sometimes much worse. Just ask the Apostle Paul. In 2004, Texas megachurch pastor Joel Osteen published a book, Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living Your Full Potential. In many ways, the book itself became a mantra for the modern prosperity gospel movement. The basic premise of the book is that God wants you to have a rich and full life. All you have to do is activate your potential and then live well. It's no surprise the book has sold over 8 million copies and counting because this is a message that people want to hear. I want to hear this, that I can have God and prosperity. I can have God and abundance. Yet Jesus says in Matthew 6.24 that no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve, and I would say by virtue, you cannot always have both God and money. And that's what prosperity gospel tries to do. It tries to serve both masters. Now, it's not that the Lord does not ever give us blessings. He blesses us all the time. He frequently gives us more than we ever ask or think. But when, it comes, when we come to Jesus, we need to know that we are coming to him for the sake of himself and not for what he can do for us. God is not a supernatural sugar daddy. He is not someone who just grants wishes like Aladdin's genie. Yet so many people, they want the gifts, and yet they do not want the giver. Jesus said that anyone who came to him would have to be prepared to lose their life. And those who would lose their life here on earth would find Christ evermore. And that is the cost of following Christ. Of course, last time we were together, last week, we talked about and we encountered a, a rich young man who was not willing to lose his life to follow Christ. And so I want to return back to that study. So go to your copy of Scripture to Matthew 19. If you were with us last week, you've already been here this morning, and we're going to build off of what we did last week, Matthew 19. Jesus and the disciples are beginning to make their way to Jerusalem. We're only maybe a few weeks to a few months away from Christ going to the cross. They're approaching uh, the city, and as they're approaching, a number of people are, are coming to Jesus and to the disciples. And they're coming from all walks of life. In verse 16 of Matthew 19, so verse 16, we're confronted here with a, a rich young ruler. He approaches Jesus and he asks, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? The Lord then goes on to tell him that he must keep all the biblical commandments, to which the young man declares boldly that he has kept all of them. And we know from Mark's gospel, he says, from my youth up. 
I've always done what's right. I've always kept the commandments. However, the Lord knows the condition of his heart, and he knows that he does not truly love the Lord completely. His wealth has become the idol. And so in verse 21, Jesus says to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. To which the young man hears the statement in verse 22, and it says, He went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Why did the young man ultimately go away? Why did he leave Jesus' presence? Because he didn't want to lose his life for the sake of Christ. He didn't want to give up what he had. He wanted to have both. He wanted to have money and prosperity and possessions and property, and he wanted to have eternal life in Christ. He didn't want to sacrifice one for the other. And so then Jesus, as he watches this young man slink away, he says to the disciples in verse 23, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But of course, when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and they said, well, then who then can be saved? To which Jesus answered, he says in verse 26, looking at them, he said, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, it, this is the point we're joining the disciples and Jesus here right at this point because you have to put, their, put your mind into where they are. You have to think about what they're thinking about. We have to understand what's going on inside their minds or we have to at least conjecture what's going on inside their minds based on what they say. Jesus has just offered this rich young ruler the opportunity to follow him as a disciple. It was the exact same call that he'd given to all the disciples who are currently with him. To stop what you're doing, to leave all your things, whether it's dropping your nets, whether it's leaving your tax collecting service, whatever it is, leave your life and follow me. And all these disciples, they've done it. They've accepted that. But in the midst of a, of a dialogue about the impossibility of a rich man inheriting eternal life, the disciples would have been alerted to the fact that, wait a second here, if the most materially blessed man, and that's how they saw wealth and riches, is blessing. If this blessed man, probably one of the most blessed men in Israel, if he could not be saved, then what hope is there for us? We don't have all the things that he had. We're not blessed the way that that young guy was. Furthermore, they were willing to do what the rich young man was not willing to do. And so they're asking also, well, what is our reward for this? Lots of questions. Because I would have had questions too, watching what I've just seen. Lots of questions, but thankfully Jesus has some answers. And so we're going to pick it up here in verse 27 to the end of the chapter. Verse 27, building off of this tension and the questions that are arising here. Verse 27, then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And so 
Verse 27 brings Peter to the foreground here, and as he often did, he functioned sort of as the spokesperson for the disciples, for the twelve. We know that there were more than twelve disciples, but these are the key twelve that Jesus is doing most of his ministry with. Now, we know that Peter's question really has been asked in light of what they've just seen with the rich young ruler, slinking away and sort of leaving with his tail between his legs. And if you look at verse 27, if you were to look at the the Greek, the grammar, the construction of the actual verse itself, verse 27 has an emphasis on the words we and us. And so when he asks the the question and when he makes the statement, he's essentially saying this, behold, we, we have followed, or excuse me, left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? The focus is back on themselves now. Now, some commentators, like James Boyce, and I respect him greatly, but he sees the statement here of Peter trying to cheer up the Lord. Because remember, Jesus was, according to Mark's gospel, he loved this rich young man and was most likely saddened when he would have walked away. And so Jesus, again, seeing this rejection from this young man, maybe Peter is trying to comfort him and say, well, Lord, we've left everything and followed you. I know this young man didn't do it, but we did. Don't forget about the ones who've been faithful to you the last three years, Lord. We're we're with you. Now, that certainly could have been part of it. I mean, that's not without question. That's certainly possible. But I think that Peter's comment, when you really read the entire thing, I think it's a little bit more self-serving and possibly even self-pitying. Well, why do I say that? Well, if you remember back in your mind in Matthew 18, verse 1, we saw this a few months ago, what are the disciples arguing about at the beginning of Matthew 18? They're arguing about which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom. They're, they're jockeying for a position. They're, they're fighting over status. And even later on, later on in chapter 20, we're going to get to this eventually here, but in chapter 20, we see the disciples get angry with James and John because they're trying to undercut them in the kingdom. Remember, their mother goes and they try to, he, she tries to, to, uh, uh, to uh, sort of campaign for her sons to become higher than other people. He wants them, she wants them to sit at the right and left hand of the Lord Jesus. And so we see, and even in these chapters, this, this fighting and contending for position and for prominence. Jesus actually rebukes them in chapter 18. So I tend to think, based on what's happening around this verse, that this verse 27 is a lot more fear-based, worry-based, possibly even bordering on jealousy or even entitlement. Behold, look, he's saying, look, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. Don't worry about that guy. What about us? Just like you told us, you told the rich young man to drop everything and followed you. He didn't listen, but we did. We, we listened to you. So what's, what's it going to be for us, Lord? Where is our reward? What do we get? Now, once again, we see Jesus' patience with them. Now, he, the Lord could have blasted Peter here. This could have been another one of those get-behind-me-Satan moments. But it wasn't. And I suspect that buried within Peter's sort of self-serving and braggadocious comment, I think was a genuine childlike concern. I really do. Lord, you just said that salvation is impossible for man. So who can be saved? That was his question before. They're worried. Then you said that a man must leave everything and follow you. We've done that, but, but is that good enough? Do we do enough? We don't have much to offer. Is that good enough, Lord? Will we receive anything? So you have to remember that several of the disciples, they torpedoed their businesses. 
They just destroyed their livelihoods and dropped everything to follow Jesus. They had also received threats and hatred from the Pharisees and likely from their own friends and family. They'd already paid a high cost to follow Jesus, and Jesus knew that. He also knew that they would pay an even higher cost in the months and years to come. He goes on really to tell them in John chapter 15, a little bit later on, a couple weeks ahead, he tells the disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And then he tells them a little bit later, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I've spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. And so Jesus, he, he's warning them about this. He knows what the struggles that they're going through. And so Peter, even if he's not asking completely from pure motives, I think Jesus is being very merciful here. And he gives them an answer that will encourage them. And so look again here at verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. As with many other important teachings, Jesus refers to the statement, or he begins the statement by saying, truly I say to you. But here he's addressing the twelve. He's addressing the twelve. And he refers to them, the men who were standing in front of him, he refers to them as you who have followed me. This is very specific to them individually. Now, we know that Jesus has other followers. We know he sends out at least at one point 70 other followers to do ministry. But here we see that he's entrusting the 12, or we've seen other places as well, he's entrusted the 12 with the most essential components of his ministry. These 12 are named in the Gospels. They're special. They're unique. Of course, we know that one of them, Judas Iscariot, will later on betray him and will be replaced by a man named Matthias, But here the specific promise in verse 28 is meant for this collective group of the twelve. These were the men who will become the apostles, the designated envoys, the ambassadors of Christ to be uh, ministers to the entire church. And so this promise then refers to a specific time in the future. And he calls this time in the future the regeneration. The Greek is the palingonesia. It refers to, some translators call this the renewal or the new age or the restoration. It's clear that Jesus, using this term, is referring to some kind of future kingdom, the, the consummated kingdom over which he will rule one day. And he notes here that when the Son of Man comes, he's going to sit on his glorious throne. He talks about this a lot later in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 34. And we will look at that in time here. Actually, let me just read a couple of verses very briefly. I want to give you some frame of reference here. He says later on in verse, chapter 25, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So that's what we're talking about here again. The Son of Man coming and sitting on this throne. And this title, Son of Man, that's a very specific title. It's a messianic title that comes from Daniel chapter 7. And we read in Daniel 7, I'm just going to give you a couple of verses here. The prophet Daniel, he sees a vision. He catches this vision of heaven. And he looks and he says, I kept on looking in the night visions and behold, in the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days, that's God, the most high, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion, the Bible says, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. And so Christ is king over this kingdom, this son of man, this Jesus Christ. He's seated on the throne of the Most High. Revelation 4.2 notes that Christ is seated on the throne and it's bedazzled with jasper, stone, and sardius, and emeralds. Really, in short, this is a glorious, beautiful throne. It's a remarkable throne, a throne, according to Revelation 22, that is the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, this would have been encouraging enough to think about Jesus spending all this time on this glorious throne, this forever throne, that he's going to come and he's going to rule and reign over Israel. But Jesus has also spent a lot of time telling them that he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die And then he's also going to rise, but they always seem to forget that part. They're worried about him suffering and dying. And yet he lifts their hearts to know that, yes, there's going to come a day when I will sit on Jehovah's glorious throne. But there's more to this than just the the coming consummation of the kingdom. There's more than just Christ seated on the throne. There's even more than this. Because at the time that Christ is enthroned, he tells the twelve, he tells the disciples that are standing in front of him, worried about what's going to happen, he says to them, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This would have been shocking, frankly. Not only will the Lord himself be seated on the throne, the most high, the throne of the ancient of days, But the apostles, the disciples, they're going to be given 12 thrones. This demonstrates the truth of the believers abiding with Christ, not just on earth, but also in heaven. We see imagery like this, this reigning with Christ imagery. Ephesians 2.6 talks about believers, all of us, being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. There's a union, there's a uniting of the Lord and his saints 1 Corinthians 6.2 declares that there is coming a time when the saints will judge the world. We will even, according to Scripture, judge angels. Now, what does that mean? I have no idea. But it's going to be amazing, whatever it's going to be. It is hard to say what this all means. There's a lot of mystery here. And I'll tell you, when it comes to the future, we do have quite a bit written, but not enough to satisfy our curiosity about everything. 
But what we do know here is that one of the privileges that we receive from the Lord is that we will reign with him in the kingdom. Revelation 3.21, he who overcomes, and that's implied to the end, he who overcomes to the end, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. There's a uniting here. There's a union of the father and the son, but also the son and his bride. What else does Jesus offer to the 12, though? There's something else going on here. This is more than just the general, the bride of Christ reigning and ruling with Christ. There's more here. He says to them specifically that you will sit on 12 thrones. That's specific. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Those numbers are not accidental, by the way. There's a reason he calls 12 apostles, 12 disciples for 12 tribes of Israel. That's not a mistake. What does he mean here, judging the 12 tribes of Israel? Scholars have lots of questions and ideas about this. One New Testament scholar, D.A. Carson, who's a brilliant scholar, Carson makes this argument here, that what this has to do with is exercising judgment over Israel, so negative judgment over Israel for their rejection of the Messiah. That certainly could be true. And I think there's probably a, 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 a lot that has to do with that part of it. But Leon Morris, another scholar, believes that it's more, it's more benign than that, actually. That there has something more to do with the administration of affairs in the kingdom. That they're going to reign as a judge the way that Moses did, sort of dealing with all the different issues that come up. They're sort of uh, uh, regarded as lower rulers over the 12 tribes, which is still a tremendous honor that each one of the apostles will be a lower ruler over the tribes of Israel. Luke 22, 28 through 30 seems to make this point also as to the honor that is bestowed to them. Jesus tells them in Luke 22, you disciples, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I, I grant to you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in this way, the 12 apostles are given a privileged position in Christ's kingdom, one that is unique and special. So this would have encouraged their hearts, because they're saying, Lord, we left everything, what do we have? And he says, I'm going to give you more than you even know what to do with. I'm going to give you a tremendous honor to sit on thrones with me and rule and judge over all of Israel, the same Israel that hates you right now. But there's more to this answer. He gives them even more. Verse 29. Verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Now he's expanding his comments beyond not just the 12, even though he still includes the 12 here. Remember, Peter is declaring, we've left everything and followed you. And so he says, I'm going to talk to you, but I'm even going to talk to more than you. I want you to notice what he says here in verse 29. In essence, he tells them that Jesus is offering, uh, or, or he's referring to the loss of both people and possessions. Notice the way that he stacks up his phrase here. He's referring to possessions. He notes the loss of houses at the very beginning of the verse, houses. And then the, the end of the list, he notes farms. What does that represent? Well, that's representing 
possessions or wealth or resources or property or anything, anything material. That's what that includes. It symbolizes all those things that we would have as possessions in this life. But then we also note that they are losing people. He notes brothers, sisters, father, mother, or children. And even within the category of the people, there's three generations even that are listed here. He notes father and mother, that's parents. He also notes brothers or sisters, that's siblings. Then he notes children. The Lord says that those who have given up everything, they've given up everything for my name's sake. And what is the, the purpose of declaring his name? Well, the name of the Lord is, is, the, is characteristic of the embodiment of his whole person. His name represents all that he is in his glory. He says, you've given up everything for my name's sake. And Mark 29, or 10, 29 notes that it's also for the gospel's sake, for me and for my message. He says, if you do that, you will receive many times as much. And Mark actually records a hundred times as much. Now, what's also interesting about Mark's account, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all what's called synoptic. A lot of times the passages sort of go together. They're different views of the same events. And when Mark records this, he also adds something that Jesus says at the end of this promise. He adds that you'll also receive persecutions. Persecutions. Mark also breaks it up into what is happening now in the present age and also in the age to come. This is very helpful because it frames our thinking. Because here's the thing. Real Christians have given up real things. This is not just hypothetical. Some of you have lost profitable careers for the sake of Christ. I've known many believers who they were following a certain career path and it, it came to a, a conflict of their principles or a conflict of their testimony and they gave it all up and they lost everything. Many of you have given up prominent lifestyles, wealth and status. Many of you have lost friends and family. For some of you, Maybe your dad isn't speaking to you anymore because of your faith. Or maybe it's your mother. Or maybe it's your children. Siblings maybe have cut you out of their life. And they might not even say that it's because of your Christian faith. They'll find other reasons to slander you. But you know deep down it is because you love Christ. And because you stand for his truth. Many people have rejected us. I can't think of this. probably not a single person in this room who hasn't experienced some element of rejection or opposition from somebody else in their life because of their faith. But I would even say that and then offer a caution. In the words of J. Gresham Machen, if you've never been persecuted for your faith, you're probably doing it wrong. That's not to say go out and seek it, but the point is, is that true faith usually manifests in opposition from other people. And Jesus, Jesus promised that this is gonna happen. He says in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and down, he says, he says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And then he says this. This is so hard to hear, beloved. I came that I might set a father, a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Then he says this. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found this life, and he's talking about this one, will lose it. But he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And so there are those who are despairing. 
believers and they come to the Lord and they say, Father, I've lost everything. I came to you because I could not come to you. I saw the, the filth and the transgressions of my sin. I saw that I was lost and I was dead. I saw that I had rebelled against heaven, against you, O oh Lord. And then I saw Jesus who gave his life for me on the cross. And I was told and I believe that if I confess my sins, renounce them and turn away from them and trust in you and follow after you, that by faith you would give me eternal life. And I've clung to that and I believe that and I've told other people about that. And it's funny, Lord, because I tell them that I've turned away from my old life and I, I now love Jesus and now they hate me for it. Lord, I've given up everything. I've lost so much for you. And so the question then is, where is my comfort? I've lost so much, Lord. What do I get? And I don't think a lot of Christians do that with their arms crossed or their hands on their hips saying, what's, what's in it for me, Lord? I don't think we do that. I think we come to him and we say, Lord, I've got nothing left, but what, where do I get? Give me something to hang my hopes on, Lord. To which Jesus says, you will receive many times, a hundred times, more houses and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children in this present age. I will give you more. How? How do I receive what I've lost, O oh Lord? Here it is. Through the body of Christ. Through the church. Once we're redeemed in Christ, He doesn't just leave us by ourselves. That's why it's so dangerous an anti-gospel to lead a person to Christ and then not lead them to the assembly. Don't get me wrong. I love, love, love evangelism. But if evangelism never directs people back to the assembly, we're missing a step. The, the gospel mandate is to make disciples of all nations. That means you bring into the assembly and we doctrinally teach and train and love and shepherd and care for and pray and nurture and grow one another. And so we are redeemed and he places us into an assembly. And what do we receive now? What do you all have now? You have all now received spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and brothers and sisters. What do we call each other? Brother, sister, don't we? We receive children that we can disciple. Even right now downstairs, there's a whole basement full of children learning and growing. And we get to share in the blessing of nurturing children here. Friday mornings we have a, a cooperative ministry where anyone who homeschools their child gets to come and participate in classes and we get to learn together. It's voluntary, but we get to learn together and grow together. I feel like I have 200 children in Christ. And I don't mean that in any kind of a derogatory way. I, I hold you all in the highest esteem. But I feel like I have received so much and my family has grown by so much. Paul calls Timothy and Titus, my beloved son, young men who he, he can pour his life into. Now many of you have found that here. Many of you. Many of you maybe have not yet found that. And so I would continue to encourage you to get to know people and, and dive in. It's hard in the beginning, I, I, I know. It's hard to get to know people and trust people. I get it. 
I've been to churches in my lifetime, and when you're starting over again, it's hard. But I'll tell you, don't let that hold you back. Because remember, the local church, that's how Christ has promised to fulfill this a hundred times more than what we've lost in the world. What about possessions? I've only talked about people so far. What about possessions? Well, it's interesting because in Acts chapter 2, we see an example of the early church coming together, and the Bible says, having all things in common. What did they do? They began selling their property and possessions, just like Jesus told the rich young ruler, but the church in the Acts, in Acts 2 model, they share all things with all as anyone might have need. And don't we do that? Don't we give to one another? I know people here who've been given groceries and meals and objects and computers and cars People have, have had their bills paid. They've had homes to live in. We've, we've borne each other's burdens, and I'm sure that there's more that's going to come in the future. But don't we receive from one another? No, we don't come here to profit. That's not the point. But we come here to bear each other's burdens and help one another to stay afloat. So yes, maybe you've lost things in this world, but don't you gain here enough? Does God not provide for our needs in the assembly? That's why there's benevolence. That's why there's a deacon's fund. That's why there's service. Jesus is offering, again, this rich young ruler, more than salvation. He offers him more than even following Christ, even though that would have been enough. He had offered this rich young ruler an opportunity. If he had sold everything, he could have blessed his brothers and sisters in the faith. He could have increased their love and increased their unity. He has such a unique opportunity. Those who have wealth, and I know that there's a lot of scriptures that, that sort of warn against being rich, but I'll tell you, there are blessings for those who have wealth and use it wisely within the common good of the assembly. When you, when you have a lot to give materially, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so God uses those who've been given much in this life to be a tremendous blessing to people who have nothing. And there's such a, a joy that comes to a person who can give generously. And I would even add to that, those who don't, by all standards, have very much and still give generously, their reward of joy is even greater. But the rich young ruler, he turned it down. He turned it down, he said no. But oh, how many believers have traded in earthly treasure for heavenly treasure. And when you see it, it's a marvelous thing. It's a marvelous thing. Yes, maybe we've lost earthly family. We've lost so much here. But because of our love and commitment to one another, we've gained a heavenly family. And even when we get to see the Lord, our family will be innumerable numbers of people in heaven. Family that we'll love. We will see our brothers and sisters again one day. This life is so temporary, but we will see each other someday. So be nice now because you have eternity with each other, okay? <laughs> but I want you to see just how much you receive in Christ more than salvation, and salvation is enough. This is why, again, it's so important to spend yourself on other people for the sake of the kingdom. Of course, we also know from Mark's gospel that Jesus also promises persecutions 
in this present age. Other people will hear your testimony. They'll know you're Christians. They'll see your love for Christ, that you'll live for the sake of his name, and they will persecute you. Sometimes they'll do something only as small as shunning you, or they'll just simply ignore you, or they'll shut you down. I know I've had social media accounts. I have a presence online. I live there because that's just how you interact with people these days. But I've had, I've had those social media accounts quieted down and silenced. I've been canceled. It happens. And you just say, all right, well, that's, that's your will, O Lord. So they'll silence you. They'll shut you down. They'll cancel you. They'll shun you. But other times they'll do worse. They'll curse you. They'll insult you. Sometimes they might even hurt you. People are out there, there are people who want to hurt the body of Christ. Other times, beloved, they will try to do worse than that. They'll try to kill you. It doesn't sound like the best life now, does it? But thankfully, in the age to come, in the age to come, the Lord is offering something better than all that is in this life. He offers eternal life. A life without suffering and pain and tears. A life without want or weakness. A life without persecution and strife. A life of only joy and peace and glory. An everlasting life in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine standing before his glorious throne in all his majesty and radiant beauty and just simply knowing I'm home. I'm where I belong. I'm with the one who made me. And I'll never get tired of worshiping him. And I'll never get tired of serving and doing in this kingdom. I'll never get tired of this glory. Oh, I can't wait. But Jesus says in verse 30, Many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the the counterintuitive nature of the kingdom of God, isn't it? It's not the rich and the proud that inherit eternal life. It's not the, all the firsts. Rather, it's the lasts in society. The poor in spirit, the lowly, the humble. God associates with those who are lowly. In the economy of Jesus Christ, humility is glory, where pride only brings destruction. Yet the disciples, they don't understand this at first. They don't get this at first. By all earthly standards, the rich young ruler, he was the perfect man for ministry. He's got everything. He's got wealth. He's got charisma. He's got status. He's got, he's got all of it. He's young. He's excitable. He's zealous. He's moral. Except that his heart didn't really belong to the Lord. And if God doesn't have your heart, then you can't do ministry. No, Christ wants devoted followers. He wants those who love him. And yet there will always be people trying to come into the kingdom hoping to yield a great reward for themselves. And again, even for us, there's always a temptation to ask the Lord again, Lord, what's in it for me? I've been faithful, Lord. I've done what you asked. Lord, I, I read my Bible every single day. And sometimes it feels like I don't get anything from it. Don't you ever have those days, those struggles? Lord, I I pray and it feels feels like they don't get answered sometimes. I serve the church and I'm just tired. I give generously and I'm broke. 
Lord, what do I get? I've left everything and followed you. What's going to be for me? Don't we ask that sometimes? But if we've learned anything from Matthew 19, it's this. That the Lord Jesus offers graciously, graciously, kingdom blessings that go beyond our foolish or fleshly desires. They go beyond anything we'll lose in this life. He gives us a spiritual family that goes far beyond number. He gives of his spiritual resources. Does he not own the cattle on a thousand hills? You know, we asked, Lord, in vain. We asked, oh, Lord, I just need $100 more. Are you kidding me? The man who created all things, the Lord who created all things? He promises that, yes, we will encounter persecution. Yes, we will have hardship. Yes, it will be hard, beloved. We will struggle, but he promises life eternal. Let me ask you, just think about this. What if this had not been his answer? What if instead he did not say you would receive a hundred times more than what you've given up? Would it still be worth following Christ? Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. In many ways, the Apostle Paul poses a similar question. He considers the merits of his former life, and he kind of does this whole personality sketch or character sketch of his previous life. He notes in the beginning of Philippians 3 that prior to his conversion, he had the right start. He was circumcised on the eighth day. Paul even had the right nationality. He was of the nation of Israel. He had the right pedigree. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He had the right identity. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had the right training as the law of Pharisee. He had the right devotion, or so he thought. As to zeal, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. He had the right morals. As to the righteousness which is found in the law, he says, I was found blameless. As for the merits of his Jewish life, he, had, he reached the pinnacle of success. Nobody in Israel was higher in terms of status and achievement than Saul of Tarsus. But then he meets Jesus, and everything changes. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says this, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss, garbage, dung, refuse, for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them to be rubbish so that I might gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I also was lay hold of by Christ Jesus He says, then, brethren, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the greatest reward that anyone could ever receive? It is this, to know the glorious Christ. That is the greatest reward, to know his his infinite personhood, his eternal nature, his perfect righteousness, his precious humility, his miraculous incarnation, his amazing ministry. To know his tender heart and his brilliant mind. To also know his horrendous sufferings and his excruciating death. His glorious resurrection, his majestic ascension. That is to apprehend his beauty and his glory. And oh, that that would be what we chase. Beloved brothers and sisters, to chase things here is so futile. To look for status even here, to look for pats on the backs and thank yous and accolades, it's so futile. It doesn't do anything. But oh, that you would seek to know Christ, that you would just chase him and say, Lord, nothing else ultimately matters. I want to know you. And then knowing you, yes, I know you'll give me more. You'll give me what I've lost but to know Christ, and like Paul says, to be found in Him. That is the greatest reward that any believer could ever get. And so I would encourage you to let your heart seek to know Him more and more. Don't stop chasing Christ. Don't ever give up. Ask and seek and knock and chase Him, and you will find more than you've ever lost. And you'll find more than you ever hope to gain in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, there are so many times as fallen and fleshly creatures, Lord, that we chase after things for our own glory. Lord, by nature, by nature we're selfish. By nature I want what I want. Lord, by nature, I worry about not getting what I deserve. My rights and my privileges and my money and my status and what I have coming to me and my honor and respect and whatever I think I'm worth. And Lord, the Bible tells us to pay honor to whom honor is due, of course. But Lord, we tend to be self-seeking. And Lord, as we examine ourselves, and if we are becoming convicted of that, Lord, we would also ask that you would forgive us of our selfishness, of chasing the rewards only, of chasing the gift and neglecting the giver. And Lord, all the times that we don't set our eyes on you and knowing you, please forgive us, have mercy on us, Because in the end, if we don't know you, then we have nothing. And so, Lord, please, especially if any one of us are battling spiritual coldness right now, if it just feels like our faith is not as vibrant as it used to be, if we've lost our first love, if we're hobbling along, if it seems like we're just kind of numb right now, Lord, please, I beg of you, 
as a shepherd of this flock, I beg you, Lord, plead with you that you would restore the love and the joy and the desire and the perseverance of the saints. That, Lord, you would stir up a love and a desire and affection for Christ that would be insatiable. That you would give us a passion for you. That we would set aside all other things and say, I want nothing but Jesus. And if I have Christ, I trust that you'll give me other things that I know I need. But Lord, please do a work in your people. Please, Lord, pour out a passion for your glory. That that would be the center of everything else that we do. That everything else would be extraneous. That we would really, truly love you with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. Oh Lord, you are glorious. Oh Lord, you are wondrous. Oh Lord, you've given your life to pay for our sins. You gave up all that was precious to you that we might have life. And oh Lord, you resurrected And you ascended and you are seated on the highest throne and worthy of all praise, adoration, and worship. And so, Lord, we rightly give you all praise and glory right now. We honor you as your beloved saints. And we do this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.